Uh, for the next uh, two weeks, uh, well, I take that back. For the next five weeks, it'll, we'll be in an interrupted series of sorts, and a series I've uh, called On Mission. You see it on the screen behind me. And uh, I'll be preaching three sermons uh, now, next week, and then, I don't know, four weeks from now, uh, around ways that we as a church engage in the work of Christ's mission of making disciples of all nations. Um, you don't have to be a missionary to be a missionary. Does that make sense? You don't have to be on the mission field to be a missionary. Uh, and for us as a church, we don't have to all uh, be called as International Mission Board missionaries or church planters, whatever the case may be, to be on mission with Christ. And so I want to take a few weeks to remind us from God's Word how it is that we can engage in meaningful ways as a church on mission. The three ways that I'll be highlighting are praying, giving, and going. Today, we're going to look first at praying, how we as a church can be on mission in prayer. Uh, the Sunday that we are gone, September 24th, uh, one of our good friends, uh, church planter from Restore Church, Justin Pearson, uh, will be filling the pulpit for me. And so you will want to make sure that uh, September 24th is a priority for you and your family in worship uh, as we hear from one of our mission uh, uh, gospel partners here in the city. And then on October 1st, Lord willing, and all of our flights on schedule, uh, our team will be back in uh, worship October 1st. Um, but we'll have just got off a plane like 10 hours before. So uh, uh, Jay Leibold from the Christian Challenge will be uh, uh, preaching uh, for us that Sunday morning, October 1st, uh, and then we'll conclude the series on mission on October 8th. But that's just so you know where we'll be the next several weeks and why we're not in Mark uh, or Mark's gospel. So Colossians 4, being on mission as a church and praying. How, is praying, how does praying help us to stay on mission as a church? Uh, I have in my garage, maybe fewer than some of you, but probably more than I need, a lot of tools that I've acquired over time. Power tools, hand tools, lots of tools. Some tools in toolboxes, some tools still in boxes that I've not yet opened from Home Depot yet. Don't judge me. They were on sale. <laughs> I'm going to use it one day. I have a lot of tools in my garage, uh, but the tools that I usually need most readily, uh, I have uh, stuck in a tool belt that's hanging just inside uh, the, the door from the house to the garage so that I can quickly grab whatever I need. And usually when I go to the tool belt to grab a tool, there's almost, I would say maybe 80 or 90% of the time, one tool that I'm always looking for. My guess is at your house, you probably have one tool that you're always looking for. I don't know what yours is. Mine is usually a Phillips head or a flathead screwdriver. Screwdrivers are some of the, just the most versatile tools. If you're going to have any tool in your house, you probably don't need a hammer, probably need a screwdriver. You can use a screwdriver for a lot of things. You probably shouldn't use a screwdriver to hammer nails. It's not going to be that effective. But if you had to, it works a lot better than trying to screw a screw with a hammer. Amen? There's a contractor in here somewhere who said, yeah, and I know some people who have tried. Uh, we all have lots of, lots of tools, but there's usually one or two that we keep always ready at hand because it's indispensable. We're going to use it for lots of different things. And screwdrivers are versatile tools. You can use them for all kinds of stuff. You can pry things open. You can, let's not think of all the different things you can do, but... A screwdriver is an indispensable tool in my toolbox, probably in yours too. As we think about being on mission as Christians, just living with Christ as Christians, there is also an indispensable tool for us, one that we cannot do without, and it is prayer. 
Prayer is the indispensable tool for the Christian walking with Christ, but also the indispensable tool for us as we are on mission with Christ. If we're going to reach for anything to help us walk with Jesus, reach for anything to help us be on mission as we ought, we ought to reach first for prayer. Prayer is the most indispensable tool for the church on mission. As we open uh, Colossians 4, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and see how he communicates the importance of prayer to the church there. Let us understand this morning the importance of prayer, certainly for our own walk with Christ, but let's also then begin praying effectively that we might be on mission with the gospel effectively. So I would invite you, as you're comfortably able, stand as we honor God, uh, reading His Word, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4. You all who are here regularly know it is exceedingly rare for me to only preach three verses at a time. So, you're welcome. I don't know. (laughs) Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2, the Apostle Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with all thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Prayer is the most indispensable tool for the church on mission. This uh, book called Colossians is actually a letter, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, a church in Asia Minor in his day. Uh, It is, even as we saw Paul mentioned, it is one of his prison epistles. Some of his letters, his epistles were written while he was uh, under arrest for preaching the gospel. Uh, We're not exactly sure when Paul was in prison at writing, uh, during the writing of Colossians, if he was maybe in prison in Ephesus or perhaps in Rome, but in, in, in either case, he's under arrest of some sorts because of his gospel ministry, and while he has some extra time on his hands, he takes up pen and paper to write to various churches, here writing to the church at Colossae. In chapter 4, verse 2 of Colossians, Paul tells the church, first of all, that prayer is indispensable for the Christian life. He reminds them of its indispensability for walking with Jesus. Now, when we talk about prayer, what are we talking about? How do we define prayer? Prayer is, as simply as possible, communion with and communication with God. Communion, or maybe, if you like, friendship with God and communication with God. That's what prayer is. Prayer, first of all, as we go to God in prayer, prayer submits us to God, or at least it's meant to. Think about how Jesus taught the disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything about how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, or at least in the beginning of their prayer, is to submit ourselves to God and to his will, not only for us, but for all things. We come to God as Father, not brother, not friend, not buddy, not pal, but Father. And we pray that God's name would be hallowed. That means that God's name would be regarded as holy, as altogether different and above every other name on earth. We pray that God's kingdom would come, which implies that He is King. And we want his kingdom to reign and that his will would be done. Not only uh, that it would be done on earth the same way that it's done in heaven where God resides, which is to say, God, your kingdom, your come, your, your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth perfectly, which is how it is in heaven. 
Everything about prayer submits us to God. He is Father. He is King. He's the one whose will is supreme. But prayer also requests God's provision and help. We don't just come to God in prayer and submit ourselves to Him, though that's right. God also invites us to request of Him. Jesus continues teaching in that same passage of Matthew chapter 6 that we're to pray for daily provision. God, give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need for the day. We're to pray for daily uh, forgiveness. Forgive us our sins, even as we forgive those who sin against us. We pray that God would provide also daily sanctification. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We recognize, even as we submit to God, to His kingdom, to His will, that there are also things that only God can give us. And so we ask Him, and Jesus invites us to ask Him. In the passages and the the verses that follow back in Matthew chapter 6, he teaches us to come to God without pretense, without all kinds of flowery language, thinking that we need to somehow get God's attention. Jesus says, God already, your Father already knows your needs before you ask Him, so just ask Him. But for goodness sake, ask Him. Prayer submits us to God. It requests God's provision and help. And in light of all of that, Paul teaches the church at Colossae and us uh, through his word as well, that prayer is to be a constant pursuit. It's indispensable for the Christian life because it's supposed to be a constant pursuit. Verse 2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Or putting the emphasis on a different syllable, continue steadfastly in prayer. To continue steadfastly is to be continually devoted to prayer, to be always giving yourself over to prayer. Paul says it differently in a letter to another church. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says it maybe more concisely, saying, pray without ceasing, pray without stopping, be always ready to pray. Prayer is a constant pursuit, but prayer is also an attentive pursuit. Pray constantly, pray in continued steadfastness, being watchful, Paul says. Did you see that? Being watchful in it, watchful in prayer. That word watchful means, it illustrates something of a a student who is ready to learn. Like me, I'm the nerd in class. I always want to sit up front, in the middle, ready to learn whatever the teacher is telling me. Some of you care more about your public reputation than I do, and that's fine. But be watchful in it. Be as a student, ready to learn in prayer. Be as a watchman on alert, ready to Alert a city uh, uh, of, of an impending disaster or impending danger. Be watchful in prayer. Have your eyes open. Be looking about. Being watchful in prayer looks like walking in this world with our, our, our attention on all that needs to be submitted to God, on our, our attention on everything that needs to be requested from God, having eyes open for everything that needs to be entrusted to God. Be watchful in prayer, continual in it. Prayer is a constant pursuit for the Christian. It's an attentive pursuit. Prayer is a thankful pursuit. We're to continue in prayer, being attentive to matters uh, about which we ought to take to the Father. Paul says, with thanksgiving. It's easy, I think, to be an unthankful prayer while sounding thankful. It's easy to pray things like, thank you, God, that I am not like those people. (laughs) Thank you, God, that I have a strong work ethic that puts lazy people to shame. Thank you, Lord, that my children aren't the ones throwing a fit at Costco this week. Thank you, God, that my church is just the way I like it. It's easy to pray in a thankful way that isn't really thankful at all, right? Real thankfulness, note, when Paul says, continue in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, real thankfulness is is what Paul encourages not just here for the church at Colossae, but all throughout the letter uh, to the Colossians. Genuine, godly thankfulness is a theme of this whole letter. 
Paul instructs, or at least gives example, that we should pray with thankfulness for the church, for the body of Christ. He does so in Colossians 1, verses 3 to 5. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Real thankfulness thanks God for his church, the people that are his saints. Paul teaches also by example that we should pray with thankfulness for our salvation. Colossians 1, verses 11 and 12 In it, Paul says, we pray that you would walk in a manner pleasing to God, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his saints in light. Real thankfulness says, thank you, God. Uh, Real thankful prayer says, thank you, God, for saving a sinner like me and giving to me by your grace what I don't deserve. Real thankfulness in prayer is a result of salvation, or just thankfulness generally is a result of knowing Christ and being forgiven of sin. Paul says in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The result of a life changed by Christ is abundant in thanksgiving, overflowing in thankfulness to God. Real thankfulness is meant to fill the whole worship of the body when they gather. As a part of our call to worship today, we read Colossians 3, 16 and 17. I'm going to add verse 15 to the front end of that. Hear what Paul says. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Prayer is indispensable for the Christian life. It is, to be a, it is a, a friendship, a fellowship, a communion with God as we submit to Him and request what we need from Him. It is to be a continual pursuit, an attentive pursuit, a thankful pursuit. Prayer is indispensable for the Christian life. It's the tool that we should always be grabbing for first because it is what connects our will, our intentions, and our affections And our desires to those of God, it's what brings our life into line with God's will. If we are devoted to prayer, we will grow in prayer. If we are watchful in prayer, we will be more effective in prayer. If we are thankful in prayer, we will be more humble in it. If we are faithful in it, we will be more conformed to the image of Christ by prayer. Now, conversely, if you are prayerless or if you are prayer-deprived, in your life following Jesus, do not be surprised to find your Christian character shriveled and self-righteous. If you are prayerless or prayer-deprived, do not be surprised to find that your faith is meager and lacking. Instead, Christian, do not rob yourself of God's blessing to grow you in holiness, to grow you in gratitude, to grow you in readiness for for gospel service by praying. Don't avoid praying. Do not rob yourself by avoiding going to God in prayer. It is indispensable for you. Do it continually. Do it watchfully. Do it with gratitude. Prayer is indispensable for the Christian life. But as Paul continues in giving these final instructions to the church at Colossae, he also demonstrates that prayer is indispensable. That is, you can't do without it when it comes to Christian mission. When it comes to doing what Jesus has commanded us to do in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, to make disciples of all nations, Paul requests that the church at Colossae pray for the mission, pray for the work that he is about doing. 
he requests prayer for himself. But the implication is that the church pray this way for themselves also. Paul says in verse 3 of Colossians 4, At the same time, even as you're continuing in prayer in your own, line, own life, at the same time, pray also for us. Paul's here speaking of himself and his missionary partners. So that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. God's word instructs us that we are to, as a church, pray for gospel opportunity. Prayer is indispensable for the Christian mission because God teaches us to pray for gospel opportunity. Paul seeks prayer for God to open a door for the word. And by the word, we know he means the gospel. He prays similarly in 1 Thessalonians chapter, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. He says there, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Paul is deeply concerned and he knows that he must have the prayer of fellow saints for God to keep opening doors to proclaim the gospel. That's interesting that Paul would ask for prayer for this, that God would open doors to the gospel, when Paul seems to be the kind of guy who finds an open door for the gospel everywhere. But that Paul teaches us to pray for gospel opportunity, or, or that he asks for it, this teaches us a few things about God and about praying and about praying for mission. First of all, Paul's request to pray for God to open a door teaches us that God is sovereign over every opportunity to communicate the gospel. God is in charge God is divinely orchestrating every opportunity for which the, in, into which the gospel is to be proclaimed. There is no occasion to explain the glory of salvation through faith in Jesus that is ever by your own contriving. Did you know that? You have never created your own gospel-sharing opportunity. Nor does it ever happen by pure chance. Friend, I don't believe in coincidences. And I don't think Paul believed in coincidences. And I know that God in His sovereignty does not believe in coincidences. I believe in God's providence. God provides all that we need, including gospel opportunity. This passage teaches us that God is the one who opens the door for gospel opportunities. So we are to pray, God, open more doors. Moreover, this teaches us to remember that the gospel mission is not our mission. It's God's mission. Prayer is essential to the mission of making disciples of all nations because it is God's mission. It's His intention. It's His plan. And we tune our lives to his mission in part by praying. This also teaches us, Paul's request to pray for gospel opportunity, also teaches us to be expectant that God will open doors. Not only that God is sovereign over every opportunity, but that God delights in opening doors for gospel proclamation. To pray for God to open doors is to expect that he will. And to pray that God keeps us ready to walk through those doors as he reveals them to us. So as you pray for open doors for the gospel, Christian, I ask... Are you, am I, also prepared to speak when those doors open, when they appear? Are we being watchful in prayer for when doors are open so that we might see them and boldly walk through them to declare the mystery of Christ? Which gets us to the third thing that Paul is teaching us here by asking for prayer for gospel opportunity. Not only that God is sovereign over every opportunity, gospel opportunity, not only to be expectant that God will open those doors, but also that open doors for the gospel are for speaking words, for communicating a message. Paul says, pray that the Lord will open a door to the, to, uh, I'll just read it. Open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel. 
Gospel opportunity requires gospel speech and not merely loving actions of service. Paul does not seek God's help to give him someone to be kind to, though we trust that he is. Nor does Paul seek God's help to see a need that he can meet, though we expect when he sees needs, he will meet them. Paul does not ask the church at Colossae to pray for him that that he might have wisdom to find someone he can bless today, though we can assume that Paul is not opposed to blessing others as he's able. Paul seeks help from God through the prayer of the Colossian church specifically to reveal an opportunity to speak about Jesus, to speak about Jesus, not just to hold a door for a little old lady at 7-Eleven and say, God bless you as she goes through. That's not what Paul wants. Paul wants opportunity to proclaim Christ, to declare the mystery of Jesus, which is that Jesus is God's promised salvation for Jews and for Gentiles alike. Whoever repents of sin trusts in Him and calls on Him as Lord. Some of you have heard and maybe uh, have used, and I hope to uh, graciously disabuse you of, the misattributed quote to St. Francis of Assisi, who some said, well, St. Francis said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. St. Francis never said that. It's misattributed to him. Let me disabuse you of this thought that you can preach the gospel without words. You can't. The gospel is not an action. Although the gospel affects our actions, impacts our actions, the gospel is a message. The word in Greek, euangelion, which we translate as gospel, means literally good news. Anybody got a newspaper on the driveway this morning? None of you. Anybody? <laughs> All right. That's fine. Anybody, anybody go online to look at the news today, right? What did you see? Words! You turn on the news channel. You turn on the local news at the, end of the, at the end of the evening when they deliver you the news. What are they doing? Telling you with words what happened. The gospel is news. It must be declared. It's not just a drama to perform. It's not just nice things to do. It is a message we proclaim. Why? Because people must know it to be saved. Paul says we are to pray for gospel opportunity, which which means that every time a door is open, it's an open door to speak, to communicate with someone. And in line with that, Paul says, Uh, Paul asked the church that they would pray for him to have bold and clear speech. He says, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I might make it clear. That I might make it clear. It's interesting. Paul does not seek prayer to be able to preach well at people. Paul doesn't ask for a, a, a preaching moment or an open slot in the town square to be able to preach something, but rather Paul asks for prayer that God would help him make the gospel clear, to make it understandable. Literally, he wrote that I might reveal it, that is to make it fully known, that I can, in as much as God enables me, pull back whatever curtain, pull back whatever shroud, whatever veil of understanding, maybe keeping someone else from understanding what the gospel is so I can make it clear to them that they might know it. In Philippians 1, verse 19, Paul writes to the church at Philippi saying, Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. It is so good and so important that we know the gospel, that that we can communicate it to others. 
Some have said that you'll, you, you, can, you, you, know, that you know something well enough that you really understand it when you can teach it to someone else. Can you teach the gospel to someone else? It is good that we know the gospel, that God, who is the king of all things, has created this world and us in His image, that we might have relationship with Him. But that we in our sin, beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve, have rebelled against God, have sought to do life our own way, on our own terms, and in so doing, we have rejected God as king of our lives. We've sinned against Him and broken fellowship with Him. That's the bad news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God and His love for us does not leave us in that sinful, broken state uh, left to our own devices, but he, He enacts a divine rescue plan to save us from sin and its results, death and separation from Him forever. And He does that by taking on human flesh in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a life without sin, the life that none of us ever could, to die on a cross in our place, a death that all of us deserved, but he did not, and thereby taking our place of punishment for sin. Jesus died for sins, and on the third day he was raised again from the dead, physically, bodily, raised from the dead. And he is coming again to bring to himself, to gather to himself, and into this world made new all who have turned from their sin and trusted in him alone to be forgiven of sin and made right with God. That's one summary of the gospel. It's good to know that. It's good to know it well enough that that you don't have to have it in your sermon notes to be able to say it. It is good that we know the gospel. Friends, it's all the better if we are fluent in the gospel so that we can make the gospel clear and understandable to those who need to know it. Bold speech steps into opportunities to declare the gospel. Clear speech takes time to help those to whom we declare it to understand it. Proclaiming the gospel, what Paul wants is not just an opportunity to explain the gospel like I just did, but to sit down with folks, take time, talk through their questions, address their, their, their points of opposition, address any confusion, and make it clear so that there's no question about what God is doing through Jesus Christ. This means that we too must not only understand the gospel, we need to understand the implications of the gospel, the implications of the good news of Jesus Christ for our own lives and how it, what the implications are for the lives of others. As we pray about being a church on mission, as we pray for missionaries like the Bordens, like the Capshaws, like those that we'll send on, on short trips, as we pray for missionaries, we need to pray that they exercise, that they have such gospel fluency, that they can help those that they share the gospel with, not only to hear the gospel, but to understand it. Consider a math teacher who tells you, the Pythagorean theorem, students, is this, that the square of the hypotenuse of any triangle is equal to the sum of the square of each, each of its sides. Yeah, amen. <laughs> what in the world does that mean? A math teacher, if that's what he says to his class, has correctly explained the Pythagorean theorem. But if they have merely left it there, if that's, all, if that's the lecture content for the day, without any explanation as to why the Pythagorean theorem matters and how it helps in matters of geometry and maybe in life. I still haven't used the Pythagorean theorem in life, but maybe one day. If all the math teacher does is define the theorem without explaining it, showing how it works, showing students how they can make it work as they solve problems that they've got for homework and such, they've not actually made the theorem clear. They've just said it. Simply saying the gospel 
does not al- is not always what is necessary to make the gospel clear and understandable and immediately applicable in the life of the one that we're saying it to. Now, must we proclaim the gospel and proclaim it clearly? Yup. Yup. But we also need to be ready as Christians to go the next step with the one that we're sharing it to. When they have questions, when they have doubts, when they have points of opposition... We need to be able to take time to talk with them, to pull back whatever curtain, whatever veil of misunderstanding may be in their hearts. And we know that there is. We know that sin blinds us and makes us deaf to the truth of the gospel. We who have been saved by God's grace in Christ must, by God's grace in Christ, be gracious with those who are still trying to figure it out. Paul says, pray that I might make the gospel clear, that I might reveal it fully, which is how I ought to speak. We must pray that God helps us not only to declare the gospel, but to have wisdom to make it understandable to those that we're declaring it to. If we leave a person with the facts of the gospel, but no idea as to how it matters to their life, no re- uh, and they're relating to God today, we are leaving them spiritually impoverished and worse, maybe spiritually confused. We need to pray for gospel opportunity. It's indispensable on mission. We are to pray for bold, clear speech that we might make the gospel understood. We are also to pray as we think about being a church on mission and sending people on mission. We need to pray for obedience. Paul ends his request by asking for prayer to do all of this the way that he knows is right. He says that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. This is how I ought to do it. There's a right way to engage a culture with the gospel, to do it in a way that's understandable by them. The right way to declare the gospel, God's intended way to explain the gospel is in a clear and clearly understood way. The assumption in all of this is that Paul desires to be obedient in every part of his gospel ministry and every part of his gospel explaining. He's taking seriously the command of Christ to make disciples of all nations. He has understood that the Holy Spirit has empowered him and has empowered all believers to give valid testimony, to be witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. It is clear that to pray for gospel opportunities is to also pray for obedience in the moment of gospel opportunity. Jesus teaches us to pray like this too. In Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, We read that after this, the Lord appointed 72 others along with his 12 disciples and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, Luke 10, verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That is to say, there are a lot of people ready to be brought into the kingdom of God, but there are few people to go out there and do the necessary work. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. How many of us have heard that message, have heard this verse, have heard the sermon preached, pray for God to send more laborers, and stopped at verse 2 of Luke 10. God, send more missionaries, send more church planters, get the gospel to people who need to hear it. But Jesus continues in Luke 10, verse 3, right after he says, pray for the Lord to send out laborers into the harvest, we read, Jesus saying, go your way, behold, I am sending you. Which is to say, if we pray for gospel opportunity and we pray for God to send people to proclaim the gospel, explain the gospel, invite people to believe Jesus and to be saved, we must also be ready to be God's provided answer to our own prayers. 
Prayer for the success of God's mission is getting the gospel to the lost, praying for missionaries to have opportunity, praying that they might have clarity with the gospel, praying that that they might be obedient when doors are open to explain it. But also, this all implies that we are praying exactly the same way for ourselves. God, open open a door for the word for me this week, that I might speak the gospel clearly, which is how I ought to do it. God, there are many lost souls in Taylor Ranch and in Albuquerque. Send me to them. We cannot pray for the success of the Great Commission without praying that we ourselves might be obedient to fulfill it. We are to pray for obedience. Prayer, brothers and sisters, is indispensable. We must be devoted to continual, attentive, thankful, grateful prayer that we might always be in tune with God's will, that we might always be submitted to and dependent upon Him. We must pray for the success of the gospel God has commanded us to. We pray that God opens doors to declare it. We pray that God gives preparedness to us to make it clear. We pray for obedience to deliver and explain the gospel as we ought. Without prayer, our mission becomes self-centered and self-dependent and self-fueled. What a dangerous place to be. But the mission is not ours. It is God's. And he has seen fit to include us in his mission as bold, faithful gospel explainers. This morning, my friend, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what we hope more than anything is not just to preach the gospel at you this morning, but to simply help make the good news of the Bible clear to you. To help you not just know the facts of the gospel, but to know the person of Jesus Christ who is himself the sum and substance of the gospel. The gospel is not just a message about what Jesus did. It's about what he did for you. That Jesus took your place for your sins on the cross. That Jesus was raised in your place to give you the hope and promise that your body will be raised too from the dead if your faith is in him to everlasting life in his presence. The gospel is good news that because Jesus died for sins and was raised again, that you may have right relationship and fellowship with your creator. Uninterrupted, unveiled, happy communion with the God who made you to know him. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus dies for sins, is raised again to make you right with God so you can have not just everlasting life when he raises you from the dead, but that you can have abundant life starting today a kind of life in fellowship with God that only He can give. And the gospel invites everyone who hears it into that relationship. It will require that you turn from sin, that you turn from living life on your own terms and turn to Jesus as Lord. Trust Him as King, as Master of your life, of your heart, of your soul, and giving your whole life over to Him to control, but also knowing that He is a good shepherd. He is a loving King. He is a a gracious Lord who wants to help you grow in holiness and form you into His image. Friend, we don't just want to preach the gospel at you. We want to make the the gospel clear to you. We want to engage your questions. We, we, We want to engage your doubt. We want to have conversations about points of opposition so that at the very least, At the very least, we can make the gospel clear. And even if you don't believe, we want nothing else than for you to say, at least I know what the gospel, at least I know what it is that I'm saying no to. This morning, we've spent some time in God's word looking at the necessity, the indispensability of prayer for a church on mission. That that we're to, it's indispensable for our, our individual lives, 
that is indispensable for the life of the church, for us as a local body of believers, as we seek not just to send people, but also to go ourselves and engage our neighbors with the gospel, we can't do it well without prayer. Now, God in His grace has helped us, I think, as a church to, to be a, an even better praying church year by year. And so I, I want for us this moment, uh, this morning, to take a moment to do what God has been helping us to do well, and that is to pray to pray for the mission, to, to pray not just for our mission team that's going to Frankfurt, but to pray for ourselves, to pray for each other as we go to the mission field that is Golf Course Road, that is Sandia National Labs where you may work, that is this or that school where you may be a teacher, this or that government agency where you are an employee, that, that God will open doors all throughout Albuquerque in our lives and with the people that we are connected with, that God will open doors for us to make the gospel clear and then to give us all boldness to step into those opportunities with all faith in Him to do so. So I'm going to invite Pastor Danny and, uh, and our praise team to the platform. They're going to just play a, a little bit of music in the background, and we're going to spend a few moments praying together for the mission and praying for our church as we are on mission. It is indispensable to us. As we begin in a, a time of prayer, I'd, I'd invite you to certainly pray at your seat, maybe kneel at your seat. Maybe the Lord's moving in your life. Uh, the Holy Spirit is, is uh, convicting or challenging or encouraging you in a particular way today and, and you need to maybe put action to your praying this morning or to what the, the Holy Spirit is leading. I invite you to maybe come and pray at these steps. There's nothing magical about them, but Often there's just something helpful about moving our, our body uh, into a posture that, it, that matches the, the posture of our spirit. So if you need to come and, and kneel at the steps to, to pray, pray with your husband or your wife or your kids, do that during this time. Friend, if you are convicted of your sin and your need for a Savior, and that that Savior is Jesus this morning, I'll, I'll be here uh, this morning just down at the front to pray with you about how you can know Christ to begin a life of relationship with Him. Do that in this time of prayer. Friend, if God is calling you, maybe, or leading you to consider a life spent in Christian leadership, Christian ministry, like maybe as a, as a pastor or as a missionary, and you need to respond to Him obediently this morning, use this time of prayer for that to say, yes, Lord, send me. I'm ready. You're calling. Whatever it looks like, let's figure it out. And let me know about it. Let someone else know about it so we can help you walk through the next steps of following God's call obediently. But because prayer is indispensable, we're going to use that tool this morning. So for the next three or four minutes, we're just going to spend some time in prayer as the Lord leads us. Prayer for the mission, prayer for ourselves, uh, prayer and gratitude to God. But let's go to Him and do what His Word calls us to do.